please turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation, the second chapter. Tonight we are considering the second part of a two-part message on the letter from our Lord to the church in Thyatira. Before we read the text and enter into the heart of the message, I do want to add another request for your prayers. I neglected to mention it a moment ago, but Mrs. Van Steenberg's mother, Mrs. Farr, is very ill in South Carolina, and it's very possible that uh, that she has not much time left. They're, they've done surgery in recent days and have discovered that the cancer is very widely spread and have determined that there's not much else they can do and are greatly concerned that she may be in very acute straits in the next few days. And so I would ask us now that we would bow again and as we prepare to ask the Lord to help us in our preaching, we also pray for this dear lady and for the Lord's intervention in this matter. Please join me as we pray again. Our Father, we do confess that all things not only are in your hands and are the working out of your own eternal and perfect will, but that you do all things right. And we find comfort in the truths that you've taught us in the midst of the chaos and the hurt and the shock of this world. O oh Lord, we thank you that we are not as others who have no hope. And we thank you that when crisis and distress comes upon us, that you have prepared us with your word to be able to face it, even in our grief and even in our fears, and to be able to sustain ourselves in it by your own grace. We do not say thank you that we are like that as the Pharisees said thank you. We say thank you, O Lord, because you have given us what we have that enables us to stand in the hour of trial and darkness. Our hearts go out to Mrs. Farr, to her family, to Marcia, to those grandchildren, we ask you, Lord, that you may draw very near to them. We ask you that you may use all of this to point hearts to you, to affirm your power, your godhood, your mercies, that you may supply every need and that you yourself may attend all that's done by the doctors and all the others, that you may enter in and intervene. That if you would, you would show your mercy in extending her days. That if you would not do that, O oh Lord, that she may die with calm knowledge of truth and love of truth. That she may know and that others around her may have confidence that she is going to be with you. O oh Lord, have mercy in these hours. Show your power. Show your grace. Show your infinite wisdom that others may fear and praise you. And now, O oh Lord, draw aside our hearts to your word. Help us to take off our spiritual shoes, stand upon holy ground, 
and hear you as people who do not grow bored with your holy word, but who will not allow ourselves to grow complacent in its hearing, but give to us a deep and a broad hunger and thirst for every word that comes from your mouth. Give help to this preacher and give help to these hearers that you would not be ashamed of us in the way we preach and in the way we hear, and that we would not negligently hear and then pay the cost later. Oh, have mercy upon us now, O oh Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now follow, please, <clears throat> as I read, beginning with verse 24. And reading to the end of chapter 2 of Revelation. <clears throat> but to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To the churches. Last Lord's Day evening, we considered the first half of this letter from our Lord by the hand of John to the church in Thyatira. We saw something of the history of this little town and noted that this lengthy letter, the longest of all the seven letters, was sent to the least important of all the towns in this circle of seven in Asia Minor. We noted the personal attributes of our Lord that were listed, especially pertinent to the church in Thyatira, that he had eyes like flaming fire and brazen feet. We then further explored his personal commendation to the brethren in Thyatira, faithful under perseverance, uh, under persecution, abounding in charitable labors, increasing over the first works into even greater notes. In fact, their very love is increasing, and he commended them. Then we noted Thyatira's peculiar sin, the tolerance of heresy and the practice of wickedness, fornication, and idolatry. And it was the essential sin of Thyatira that there was one teaching this stuff to them, and they were allowing it, and by their allowance, encouraging it. Then we saw Christ's gracious patience in verse 21 as he gave them space to repent. He had given this wretched woman Jezebel space to repent, but she had not repented. And we explored the wonderful doctrine of our God's patience and all the opportunity that he's given to all of us to turn from our sins before it's too late. And then finally we observed Christ's burning wrath that wrath which was awaiting to fall upon Jezebel and all of these in the church who were her children, in which he was going to kill them with death. Now we continue tonight in the second portion of this letter to the church at Thyatira by looking at the more positive side 
as our Lord is very careful always to give a balanced treatment in all of his dealings with his people. Now, I want to say to you that this letter to the church at Thyatira is perfectly pertinent to us because it deals with a church that lives in a town that is fairly well-to-do. There's employment to be had. People have jobs. They have things. They are relatively comfortable in this world. They have not lost their goods. They're not as, it, as the people in Smyrna who are doing without, who are poor in this world. The church at Thyatira is not undergoing such a trial at this time. And yet the church is seen by the Lord as undergoing an immense trial and testing. And it's just this, that in their time of prosperity, when things are going relatively smoothly in the world, they are in danger of being seduced by the allurements of the false prophet, the allurements of the Jezebels, who teach things as though they're true, which are designed to encourage the people of God to enter into practices which deny their faith and drown them in perdition, namely, in this passage, idolatry and fornication, taught by someone in the church as permissible, yea, as preferable to the saints of God as in keeping with the gospel of grace. The old doctrine of antinomianism. And this is at the root of the problem in Thyatira, and I believe it is perhaps most appropriate to our ears in this day. None of us that I know of are suffering unduly in this world because of our stand for the Lord Jesus. None of us are doing without this world's goods. And those of us that want more are not necessarily doing very badly as it is. We have more than most of the world has. But there lies at our feet in a growing church, in a church that is considering entering into a building program, in a church that is seeing more visitors come and the pews beginning to be more and more frequently filled up, there is the danger that in this outward prosperity we may fall and stumble through the allurements of those that would begin to, to lead us to think that these are proofs that all is right between us and God. And therefore, since we're under grace and prospering outwardly, we can lower our guard and let down the resistance against sin. And in some cases actually begin to teach us, as I believe is typical in the evangelical church of our day, that it's right to sin because it's not any big deal anymore since we're under grace and not under the law. So this is a very pertinent letter to the Albany Baptist Church and to those who live in 20th century America. But this second half of the epistle directs itself more to some positive statements couched in the context of conditions that are typical of these letters from our Lord. The Lord gives promises to some in Thyatira. He stated the warnings and the threatenings to those who are following this Jezebel and obeying her teaching and worshiping idols and committing fornication. He has told them that they'll die with death, the second death. But now he turns to those, the rest in verse 21, verse 24 in Thyatira, as many as who do not have this doctrine, meaning as many who have not bought this 
as many who refuse to heed this teaching. They do not possess this teaching. They are aware that it's going on, but they don't accept it, nor do they believe it themselves. And who have not known the depths of Satan. They have not entered in to this sophisticated Gnostic tendency to study things that are not to be studied to go beyond the word of God and begin to expose themselves as pretentiously wise and better in knowledge than the normal Christian. These people have not decided to go beyond the word of God and come up with new truth and new liberating truth. And some even call it the depths of Satan, either meaning that they have studied Satan so as to know that they can outwit him with their ingenuity of theology, or that they've decided to involve themselves in his ways so as to prove that grace overcomes even communion with the devil. And it very well could be the latter in keeping with the fact that Satan is behind idol worship and he uses fornication as an allurement to get people to idols and vice versa. So the Lord now directs his attention to those who have not bought into this doctrine nor entered this practice of idolatry and immorality. And he addresses them with promises. Now there are two broad aspects to this sermon. The first is this. The confirmation and the clarification of our perpetual duty. In these promises, the Lord lays before us, as he lays before the church at Thyatira, the confirmation and clarification of our perpetual duty. And then in the second place, by way of promise, the Lord shows us the reward and the blessing of our faithful obedience. The reward and the blessing of our faithful obedience. Under the first heading, we will consider only one thing that's listed in this text. The confirmation and clarification of our perpetual duty coming in the form of a promise is stated in the last part of verse 24 when the Lord says, I will put on you no other burden. There's a promise from the Lord. I'll put on you no other burden. But involved in this promise that they'll have no other burden is the confirmation and the clarification of their perpetual duty. It's very important to see this. It's not just a generic promise. What does it mean not to put on you any other burden? How can they find encouragement from that? Well, it's partly found in what he's teaching by this statement. And what we are asserting is that implied in this statement and included in it is the confirmation and clarification of our duty, our perpetual duty. The Lord never leaves his people with unclear directives and duty. Disobedience can never be mollified by the excuse of ignorance. We have a good father. We have a gracious master. And our good father and our gracious master have given us clear instructions as to how we may please him. The Lord has not given some generic commandment to be good 
and left the specifics up for grabs. His word is clear. And here he is reminding them of truth regarding their perpetual duty in the midst of this promise to lay no other burden on them. Now, what does this term burden mean? Turn with me to Acts chapter 15, and I'll help you to discover, I believe, what our Lord himself has on his mind when he says, I'll lay no other burden on you. We'll look at two passages, first Acts 15 and then Matthew 11. In Acts 15, verse 28, you know the situation in the council in Jerusalem, approximately A.D. 50, when Paul and Barnabas have gathered together among with others among the leading men of the brethren in the church at Jerusalem in order to have given to them the directives from the brethren at Jerusalem as to how the Gentile churches are to be conducted, how their lives are to be conducted, and exactly how to apply the gospel of grace to those who are not Jews and that are coming into the faith, and what kind of rules to lay down for those churches so that there won't be a schism in the churches between Jerusalem and those in the outlying more Gentilish areas. They are coming to make this decision. And then as... Uh, the brethren are standing up to speak. They send a letter by them to the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. And they say greetings, etc. And then in verse 28, a little key verse says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you. Now these are the brethren in the church at Jerusalem who apparently have the authority to determine how the, all the other churches are going to be conducted. This is the mother church. This is the apostolic church. And they are making the decision. And it was seemed good to the Holy Spirit, they say, and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. They are going to lay upon them nothing other than necessary things. A part of the meaning of this term burden in Revelation 2, when the Lord says, I will lay upon you no other burden, he does not mean there is no burden. But he means no additional burden than that which is foundational. The necessary things that they must continue to bear. Namely, abstinence from idolatry and those related practices. Meats offered to idols things with blood eaten, things strangled, all of which were associated with some of the idol worship among the Gentiles, and fornication. Isn't it interesting that in the letter to Pergamos and in the letter to Thyatira, our Lord emphasizes these two things, idolatry and fornication. Isn't it interesting that in Acts 15, when the church of Jerusalem decides what are going to be the rules for conduct to be emphasized for the Gentilist churches, these are the two focal points. No idolatry are the things associated with them, and no fornication. And we determine to lay on you no other burden than these. 
These are especially associated with the temples of idols. You see what they're saying? The sum of the obligations laid on the Gentilist churches by the mother church in Jerusalem are seen to reflect themselves in these two prohibitions. Abstain from idols and related practices and stay away from fornication. Now then, turn with, with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, verse 28 and following. Necessary things have been laid on the Gentile churches by the brethren in Acts. And here our Lord has a word about a burden. Matthew 11, verse 28. Our gracious Savior says, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The word burden, again, is used by our Lord, as it was used by the Holy Spirit in Acts 15, and as it is used by the Lord himself in Revelation 2, in his directives to the church at Thyatira. And he says, I'll lay no more burden on you. And he implies several things. What is the burden of Matthew 11? Well, I submit that it is nothing other than the burden of the basic and central moral obligations summarized in the Ten Commandments and the Two Great Commandments. That's Christ's yoke. That's Christ's burden. It's the sum law or duty ordained by the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Foundational directives, necessary things, to be nothing to be added to them. The Lord is concentrating on the burden that the church at Thyatira already has to bear and is going to lay nothing more on them. Now, there are two aspects to this statement that are especially important to Thyatira and to us. And the first aspect is this. This is not the abrogation of moral law and responsibility. I will lay no other burden on you. This is not the Lord coming in and saying, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, no rules, no moral responsibility, no accountability. If he were to do that, he would be in league with Jezebel. He's not doing that. He's not saying, I'm going to save you by grace, you don't have to worry about all these rules. That's not what he's saying. This is not the abrogation of moral law and responsibility. But it is the confirmation and clarification of such duty. Confirmation. No other burden do I lay upon you but that which you have. Did you see that in the next verse? That which you have, keep it. And there's a connection between no other burden and that which you have. And the connection is this. 
I'm not adding to you any other responsibility than what you already have. Keep what you already have. I'll add nothing more to you. But keep what you have. You see, he's not saying there's no burden. He's saying, I'll add no more burden. It is important to understand. Not the abrogation of their moral responsibility, but the confirmation and clarification of such duty. Falsehoods and errors are springing up in the churches. And they're most frequent, frequently connected with this heresy that the moral law has been completely abrogated and has utterly no relation to true followers of Jesus Christ. Brethren, there are men who call themselves Reformed Baptists who preach such things, who say that we're under grace, not under the law, that the moral law has no relationship to the Christian, that the Ten Commandments are not to be preached or worried with. We're out from under all that. We're under grace and all is well. We're not under the law, but under grace. This antinomian spirit is rooted in resentment of God's rule, and it's founded in the love for sin, the fountain of all the heresies of our day. Men love sin, and men will find all sorts of ways to twist doctrine in order to support sin. And men don't like being alone in it, and so they like to get followers. And they gain confidence in their ways by getting successful churches built on such heresy. As Dean Trench said, it was the master stroke of the antinomian teachers to exaggerate, to distort, to misapply all that Paul had spoken about the freedom of the Christian man from the law. They caricatured his doctrine till of God's truth they made a devil's lie. Paul had said that the law was not the ground of the Christian man's justification or holiness. They made him to say that the law was not the rule of our life. In this passage, the Lord does not disclaim the moral law, but he enforces it. I do not lay on you a burden other than what is already laid upon you. Hold fast that which you have. And then in verse 26, keep my works to the end. Keep my works to the end. What works? If there are no duties, what duties are there to keep? If there are no works, why tell them to keep his works till the end? The Lord is not abrogating their duty. He's confirming that they do have a duty. They have works to do, and they must keep them till the end. And he's clarifying exactly what those works are. They're not additional works. They're the works that are already laid upon them. The truth of the first table of the law relating to our worship of God and our love to him and the second table of the law relating to our fellowship and treatment of our fellow man. And all of it summarized and focused in on those representative commandments relating to idolatry and fornication. And trust me, brethren, those two sins have an effect on all the others. Those two things permeate all the others. Fornicators become liars, professional liars. They live a double life. They fake it. They live in public as clean, but in private they sneak around. They steal, they rob, they steal people's wives, people's daughters, people's sisters, people's friends. They steal people's marriages and homes. They steal their income. They steal their health. Uh, they, they murder. They you think fornication isn't murder? With today's medical reports? 
covetousness, disobedience to parents, all of it's comprehended in these sorts of sins. So on the first hand, the Lord is not abrogating their moral duty or ours. He's confirming it and clarifying it. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. But that doesn't mean he doesn't have a burden and he doesn't have a yoke. He does have a yoke that must be borne and worn, and he does have a burden that must be undertaken. But the second aspect of this statement of the Lord is this. It's not the heavy imposition of unbearable rules and strictures, but the sweet promise of a bearable burden of delightsome obedience to the end. He's not abrogating the burden, but he's clarifying it and he's teaching this about it. It's not that he's laying upon them this heavy, unbearable load of rules and strictures. It's just the opposite. And that's why it comes in the picture of a promise. I'll lay no other burden on you. Keep what you have. What you have is a burden, yes. But it's a light burden. The sweet promise of a bearable burden of delightsome obedience to the end. Come unto me, he says. And I'll give you what? Rest. Rest under what? Under a burden. Rest with a yoke on your neck. Yes, there's a yoke. And there's a burden. But it's easy. And it's light. Now what does that mean? Does it mean that the Lord Jesus is lowering the standard of the moral law so that we can bear it? Is that what it means? He looked at us and he saw, those people can't keep the law. Those people are idolaters. Everything they do is they worship wrongly. I've got a Lord. I can't be so picky. What if they need a few icons and pictures and statuettes hanging around the walls to help them worship? I'm not going to condemn that anymore. They couldn't bear such a limited, restricted rule of worship. Is that what we're talking about? As the Lord said, they can't keep the moral law, so I'm going to lower the standard to such a degree that they can. Brethren, if the Lord eliminated it, you wouldn't be able to live up to it. There's no... There's no there's no whittling away at the law that can get it down low enough that anybody in this room would supply the need. You people and I have broken it to the depths. There's not a particle of it that we haven't abolished and ruined and abrogated in our own thinking. The Lord couldn't possibly do it, nor would he do it. That's not the point here. God's not looking at a standard he made for behavior, perpetual, and then saying we can't keep it. He's lowering the standard and saying, now, the Pharisees had their yoke upon you that you couldn't bear. If they expected you to live up to the Ten Commandments perfectly, I don't expect that at all. My yoke is easy, my burden's life. Follow me. You don't have to worry so much about all these rules. I'm not so hyper about fornication. I know boys will be boys. I know that people have natural lust. God made you this way. How could God condemn you for such things? Obedience to parents. Well, what if the parents are a little bit arrogant? Or what if the parents don't understand what I as a child need? What if my parents are old fogies and don't want me to date whom I please and don't want me to eat what I please and don't want me to watch the TV programs they choose? What if they're narrow and what if they're selfish? Well, I'll break the fifth command. The Lord is not saying you children are let off the hook. You still sin against God when you dishonor your parents and God's angry with you. And God has said if you dishonor your parents, your days will be shortened in this earth. God will punish you for that. You'll pay for that. Now the Lord's not lowering the standard and lightening the burden in that sense. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 15 again. 
what went before this declaration from the brethren in the church. Acts 15, verse 10. The Apostle Peter, by the way, Peter and Paul and Barnabas and Silas and James and all the others agreed as to their doctrines. Peter's preaching the same thing here that the others preached just a few verses later. There were no, there's no separate theology of Peter and a theology of Paul and a theology of John and a theology of Barnabas. There's Christ's theology that comes through the unique personalities of different men, all of whom are preaching the same truths. In verse 10 of Acts chapter 15, and that was for some of you seminarians. Acts chapter 15, verse 10, Peter in the midst of his preaching saying that God has made no distinction between us and the Gentiles, purifying their hearts by faith. In verse 10, now therefore, why do you test or tempt God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. A yoke on their neck, which they couldn't bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now, if you read that passage quickly, and you don't read the rest of Acts 15, you might well agree with the antinomian who says, see, we're saved by grace. Don't put this yoke of the law on their necks. The, the fathers couldn't bear it. How could we bear it? That's not the point. Because they turn right around and put a yoke on their necks by saying, no idolatry, no fornication. You can't even eat things strangled, even though you yourself may not intend by that to be worshiping idols. It's so connected with idol worship that you must not do it. Don't even eat blood in animals, though in, a, in, in one way God has cleansed everything and there aren't any more of those dietary restrictions under the new covenant, yet this is so equated with some of the mystery religions and some of the idolatry of the Gentiles, you can't do that. Well, that doesn't sound like no burden and no yoke. doesn't sound like they've removed all the rules. No, they're not. But you see what the Lord means by my burden being easy and my yoke my yoke easy and my burden light is what we may find in Philippians chapter 2. Read it with me and see if you don't see it. Philippians chapter 2, very familiar passage. The apostle is appealing, as we saw this morning, to a church for unity of mind and heart, not just of outward unity. And he's appealing to it on the basis of the example of our Lord. And he's appealing to them to exercise this kind of obedience even when he's not with them. And he says in verse 12b of Philippians 2, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why do you need to work it out with fear and trembling? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do. Of his good pleasure. Now, what do I? Why do I connect that passage with a light and easy burden and yoke? Just this: God has laid on us a burden to please Him, to obey Him. He has not abrogated that burden, nor has He nullified it. His yoke is the same yoke 
in terms of its content that was the moral law of the Old Covenant. Summarized in the two great commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The Lord even says that we are to love each other as he loved us. Far from lowering that standard, he, if anything, he heightens it. But Philippians chapter 2 gives some hope and some comfort to old Christians who are struggling in their working out of their salvation. And they do it with fear and trembling because they're doing it in the presence of God who's at work in them. This is no light matter. This is no shallow matter. God's at work in us. So we must do our working with fear and trembling. This is God we're dealing with. But look what God's at work in us to do. He is at work in us to will and to do His good pleasure. The encouragement is that God is seeing to it that we desire to do His will and that we do His will. There is a provision made in the new covenant that was not made in the old covenant. Not to ignore and reject His good pleasure, but to desire and to do it. But the burden is light and easy because it's according to this new covenant privilege and provision. God is at work in us. You see that? What did the new covenant say? Not like the old covenant, which I gave to the house of Israel, which covenant they broke. And what was the old covenant? Where was it constituted? Well, it was in tables of stone, external to them, and they couldn't live up. And all the extra stuff provided in the covenant of Moses was just baggage. The elementary principles of this world, the carnal and external, the dietary restrictions. You can't touch this. You can't taste this. You can't do this. You can't plow with an ox and an ass together. You can't feed a, uh, boil a kid in his mother's milk. All kinds of things. It's just on and on and on. You read it and read it. You can read the Pentateuch until you're blue in the face. You can read that stuff and you get confused and mixed up. How could we ever remember all that? And if we could remember it, I'm, I'm, I'd probably get my linen and my wool mixed up and I wouldn't know. It just gets burdensome. And the Pharisees loved that stuff. And they took that stuff and they added more to it. And they just, they thought, well, if a, if a little restriction of diet is good, then let's just, just impose fastings on people. If, uh, if it's good to be uh, unmarried in this, let's don't let anybody. There, there's this mentality of taking it far further than God ever intended it and laying a burden that nobody can bear. The neck yoke that the brethren in the old covenant couldn't bear was all this, all this excess earthy baggage. That could never put men right. All the sacrifices of blood of bulls and goats could never wash away sin. And yet they had to faithfully adhere to those things morning and night. Morning and night throughout all their generations. And they had to watch everything they did. Wash this. Cleanse this. Wash the hands. Cleanse the cup. Touch this. Don't touch that. Walk this far. No further. And when the Pharisees got their hands on all this, it just went berserk. But the Lord is not adding new strictures. He is not giving additional laws. No novel system of rituals and rules laid upon his church. No bead counting. No lists of tenants. You come for counsel to Christ. He doesn't say, well, go home and walk on your knees till he bleed for a while. And then your sins may be washed away. 
Or, oh, this is serious what you've done. God will never get you back into fellowship with Him unless you do something to pay Him back. Go punish yourself a while. The Lord doesn't add that kind of thing. Nor does He add intricate webs of requirements of lighting candles and pitching a quarter here and a dollar there and handing a little cash under the table hoping your sins are... No, no. He doesn't make worship something that's so ornate you can't even keep up with it so you have to trust some professional to know even how to conduct it. If every pastor in the country died today, uh, any number of you men could, under God's grace, stand up here and direct worship. Normally, you're not supposed to. Generally, that's not the right thing to do. But if you had to, in terms of knowing what things to do, you wouldn't have that much problem. Because the Lord's conduct of His worship is not that intricate and ornate. The Lord's Supper, what do we do? Some unleavened crackers and some juice from the fruit of the vine and... Off we go. You get into a, the Passover meal, and boy, you've got to have an expert pro come and de- demonstrate the whole thing to you. And you, you, get for, you need to have one every year in the springtime so you can remember what it all was. That was the, the, those are the elementary principles. That stuff's been done away with. It's all simplified. Now, that's an expression of our Lord's approach to this thing. It's God at work in you. Remember the New Covenant? Not as the old covenant, which covenant they broke, but in the new covenant, I will put my law within their hearts. We read it in Ezekiel this morning. I will put my spirit within them. I'll give them a heart of flesh. What's the difference here? Not the content of the moral law, but the provision of God to love it and follow it. It's light, not because he's eliminated a few of the commandments, but he's changed the heart. It's a delightsome thing to keep God's law if you're saved. If you're a believer, His yoke fits. You love serving as a slave, your master in heaven. He's no dreaded taskmaster. You welcome His his commandments. Oh, you dread it when you go a few days and you don't hear a word from the Lord. When your Bible becomes a cold book to you. You love hearing God just say anything to you. Give me a directive. You look forward to the law. You know there was a time. I don't know. I can't say for sure. Whether during those days there was not a regenerate heart here. More appropriately, I think it was probable that my teaching was such that I just thought that I was supposed to avoid any commandments and words of obedience because I was taught that that wasn't associated with grace. There was a time when I would never think to go to the Old Testament and the law in order to find some encouragement. I would never have found any meat and drink from the Ten Commandments. I'd go to that to study some fact or learn some things, you know, so I could be prepared for a theology test or something. But to go in there in devotional reading, never would I do that. I stayed in the pleasanter Psalms. I picked them and there was a few. I welcomed little gospel things, but I, my devotions were... I couldn't just go consecutively through my Bible and be close to God. Not in my mind. Today, to find comfort in commandment. The 119th Psalm is a wonderful picture of that. Sweet like honey to the taste of the believer. Not a burdensome, onerous load. No, no. But a precious thing. The Lord is not removing the burden, but He's giving it in such a way His burden is light. His yoke is easy. It's fit for our necks. 
And lo and behold, we find another in the common yoke with us, holding, our, holding his end up in such a way that the plowing is good and right. We have this fellow oxen in the yoke with us, our older brother, our mighty Christ whose shoulders are able to bear and who has fit this yoke for us to walk with him, and it fits the neck. He says, keep what you have. The doctrine and the practice long ago established, not as burdensome, but as delightsome and richly rewarding. So you see these two aspects here of this instruction. He's not removing their obligation. And, but he's not at the same time imposing a heavy, unbearable load upon them. He'll give them no other burden than the one he's given them. And it's a burden that's light. Because he's provided in their hearts himself to work it out. It's God the Spirit who is at work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. Therefore, we don't need to be afraid of a new directive from Christ. We don't need to shy away from his law. We need to go and learn all we can about it and try our best to fulfill it all. Because he'll help us in it. He gives us the desire to do it. He gives us the ability to do it, and we need to run in the way of his commandments, not away from the way of his commandments. Brethren, there's no gracious living apart from commandments. There's no happy life apart from obedience to listed commandments. Not in a pedantic and negative and slavish way, but in the way of sonship who delight in doing his will, which is clearly revealed in his holy, righteous, good, spiritual perfect law. Keep what you have, because then it is a delightsome and rich reward. Well, that brings us to the second aspect of this teaching. We have seen the confirmation and the clarification of our perpetual duty, as underscored by this statement, I'll lay no other burden upon you. Now we come to the second part of the sermon, the reward and the blessing for our faithful obedience. Now this is seen with two promises. The Lord underscores this comfort. He gives us promise of reward and blessing for faithful obedience. And there are essentially two of them. First, power or authority over the nations. And second, the morning star. Look at verse 26 again in Revelation chapter 2. He is said in 25, hold fast what you have till I come. The burden you do have, hold it fast till I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give power over the nations. And then he quotes from Psalm chapter 2, he shall rule them with a rod of iron as a potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces. First of all, then, let's consider this first of his promises of blessing and reward for faithful obedience, power over the nations. Now, notice there's a condition attached to these things. Don't forget that. To him that overcomes, to him that keeps my works till the end. This is no willy-nilly promise that all of you are going to get a reward. This is a promise to a certain man, to him who overcomes, to him that keeps my works till the end. You see, there's an extremely formidable foe before us in this battle. This antinomian spirit who tells us we can relax our guard against our sin because grace abounds. 
Every one of us has that spirit within us. Every one of us is prone to falling to that. There's not a soul in this place that doesn't have written all over his heart the love of certain kinds of sin and the desire that God would somehow let him know he could continue in them without being punished. There's a spirit in us that would, if God would tell us we could, run headlong into certain sins if we just thought they wouldn't be punished. Some of us, the only reason we restrain ourselves is because of the fear of the consequences. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean you go out into despair tonight and give yourself to your sin because that's a poor motive. If it works, it's a good enough motive until you can get a better one. God is not averse to saying things like, if you do this, it'll cost you. And he does it so you won't do it. It's okay for a parent to say to a child, I will spank you if you do this. Well, that's a poor motive. Why don't you motivate your two-year-old for love for you? Because he's not mature enough yet to understand and appreciate the full breadth of love for his parents. And sometimes that's not going to get anything done. But he is old enough to remember the sting on the bottom. And if you put enough sting on there, you'll save his soul from death. That's what Proverbs says. No, this, this enemy of antinomianism is a formidable foe. There's plenty within us desiring to sin and run from the service and the rule of Christ. And if anybody could convince us that we could have the benefits of Christ and still practice our sins, that would be tempting indeed. You see, there's some of us, I believe, in this place who are still riding the fence between these two worlds. We're still looking for a way to have our pleasures and to be Christians too. We're not quite sure yet what it's going to cost. We're afraid to give up all of this world. We're afraid that maybe the Lord won't come through. Or maybe we still love these sins enough we don't want to give them up. And we're hoping, but we also know that if we give up Christ, that's not going to be any good. We know enough of Christ to know we need him. We love enough of our sin to think we want to hold on to them. And some of us living in two worlds. The Bible says something about a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. He can't pray with consistency. He doesn't have any boldness before God. He never accomplishes much in this, in, his, in this life. He doesn't teach others. He never rises up to be a leader in the church. He's not to be trusted. He can't call on him for anything because his life is one back and forth. He's trying to please God and he's trying to please his lust. And, he's, and he doesn't know what to do and he gets all bound up. You can't live long like that, my brethren. No, we're told that we cannot, we must not give in to the temptation to relax our guard. We must overcome. You see, in this sense, overcoming is not so much overcoming those who come and burn your house down. In this text, it's more overcoming that one that's trying to get us to go worship idols and commit fornication. In the name of Christ. In the church. It's overcoming the sweep and the flood tide of false religion under the name of evangelicalism that says it doesn't matter how you live as long as you're under grace. That's a formidable foe, is it not? Because that sounds appetizing. I'd be a fool to pretend that that were not appealing to some of you. I'd be a liar to say it were not appealing to me to some degree. I mean, what else is our sin? but the desire to do things that God is not pleased with. And part of our sin is that if we could, we would. I thank God for the knowledge he's given me that scares me from certain things. I would have destroyed myself long ago if it weren't for the fear of the consequences. 
I give God thanks for these passages of Scripture that show me the end result of some of my foolish behavior. And I stop short of some of it just because I don't want that to happen to me. Now, I long for the day when every one of my motives is saturated by affection for Christ and love for Him, and I don't even have any interest in sin. I look forward to that. I'm not there yet. I have a long, strong feeling that I won't be there till I'm in glory. But I long for improvement in that area. I tell you what, though, brethren, that's the formidable foe to our church. At this stage, we're not in much threat of the government throwing us over and kicking us out. Not too much danger today of physical persecution and shedding blood for our faith, but there's great danger in this congregation of men and women lowering their guard to the threat of certain types of secret sins because some voice in the back of their mind, some preacher from a tape, some radio broadcast, some former pastor, some book or booklet they've read says, it's no big deal. And we've got enough drive in us that wants to do the thing that that thing is welcome in the ear and it's hard to get it out. What if it's true that a Christian really could do this and get by with it and still go to heaven in the end and rejoice? What if it's true? And what if all these preachers, these Pastor Allens and others who are so hard on sin and so hung up on this little stuff, and brethren, I don't believe I'm hard enough on your sins. What if these guys are wasting their breath and burdening us down with a burden we're not supposed to bear? What if we could loosen up a bit here and not worry so much about obedience and just float and find our own natural level the way water does? Well, I fear for you, I fear for myself, if this church is left to seek its own level. I'm not interested in finding you at your own level, brethren. And that's why we need the Word of God. So, there's a condition placed upon these promises at the outset. He promises no other burden. But there's further comfort and encouragement. And he promises two things. First, authority over the nations. Authority over the nations. The believer may ask, how will this war in which I find myself embroiled turn out? What will be the issue of this great contest with evil? Well, I tell you, you'll suffer. You must pass through dark valleys and you're going to encounter wicked devices. You're going to meet disappointments if you follow Christ. But your end will be bright and triumphant and glorious. And that's promised by our Lord who says, I will give you authority over the nations. And then he quotes from the psalm, He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces as I also have received from my Father. Turn back to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. There's a picture of the way it is in the world in Psalm 2. Here's the question the psalmist asks in the first verse. Why do the heathen rage or the nations and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords from us. Brethren, if that's not antinomian, I don't know what is. Let's get rid of these chains of God's law for that man. Let's do our thing. 
they hate God because he's always in their way. They hate his loss hanging above the doors of the school building. So they outlaw it and replace it with somebody else's law and pretend it's not religion. They welcome theistic evolution and atheistic evolution as taught as fact. But they don't want the Ten Commandments because that's violating the principle of the separation of church and state. They want to teach your children how to have sex safely, so-called. And give them the doctrine of premarital intercourse without accountability. They do not want them to be taught, thou shalt not. Let us break his bonds. Cast away their cords from us. That's what they're up to. That's what this is all about. That's all that it's all about. Don't kid yourself. But look at what he says in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Can you fathom what it means for God to have deep displeasure? Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. The very nations that are casting away the cords. The ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Crushing them into powder. Now therefore, he says, and so forth. That's the promise that's quoted in the Revelation. Look at the picture. Here's the power of the world and its servants raging and striving against the righteous dominion of God and his anointed son, Jesus, and his people. They oppose Christ and they oppose Christ's subjects. They reproach us, they slander us, they persecute us. You know why they do it? Because when they see us acting like him, they hate us. When they see Christ in us, they do these things. Nobody's going to suffer for Christ's sake when people don't see Christ in you. You want to avoid suffering? Don't let them get a hint of Jesus in your life. And I'm not talking about going up to them and button and hold them with your witness. Don't let them have you acting in a way that embarrasses their action. Don't let them see you doing right while they continue to do wrong. Don't let them hear you rebuking their wrong. Just bug off. Don't rock the boat. You'll not suffer. We're told to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness in Ephesians 5. We're told rather to reprove them. That doesn't mean we don't go to work with heathen. It means that while we're working with heathen, we don't tolerate them living the way they live without some form of living and possibly verbal rebuking. We don't allow them to get by with that stupid stuff and that rebellion. Not that we're trying to punish them ourselves. Not that we're snotty and narrow and arrogant and holier than thou. But we take a righteous stand and we refuse to follow them. We refuse to laugh. We refuse to go along. And sometimes we look them in the eye and say, Have you considered the outcome of the way you're living? Do you not understand that God has a day for himself every week that he expects all his creatures to honor? Do you know what you're doing? You're shaking your fist in the face of the one who made you. 
You don't have to say that bitterly and angrily. They're not hurting you folks by being what they're being. You're going to be taken care of. Not a hair of your head will be harmed. You don't need to defend yourself. You don't need to be uptight about all that. But you with a weeping heart can look at them and ask if they know the judgment to come. And you can plead with them as Paul with Felix of righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come. It's that kind of Christian witness that causes people to tremble. And maybe the reason they're not trembling around many of us is because we've never reproved their works yet. We're scared to death of them. You see the picture. The power of this world and all of its servants raging against Christ and his servants. Well, there's a second picture, though. The final victory of Christ and his servants over them. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I don't think we have time tonight, but I wish to direct your attention quickly. Let's do it. Revelation chapter 18, chapter 17. We've studied it, but I want you to see it in this context. We'll do it quickly. Remember the theme verse of Revelation in verse 14. Verse 13 has said that these these kingdoms, represented by this beast, verse 13, they're of one mind. They'll give their power and authority to the beast. All the kingdoms of the world are with one mind. It's the mind of Psalm 2.1. That's the mind. Raging against Christ. They're of one mind. They're all united in this. They don't even know it. We're not talking about external, conscientious, political unity. We're talking about demonic unity. They don't even know they're with one mind. They're all serving Satan's ends and they don't even know for sure they're doing it. That's the point. From the perspective of heaven, they're all together. You can explain all their behavior from this. They're out to kill Christ and to get rid of his yoke. Then it says these will make war with the Lamb and the Lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him, the called, the chosen, and the faithful. So then he goes about to describe these enemies of the world in verse 15. Who are these peoples? Who is this water which the harlot sits on? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In other words, those that are persecuting Christ and his people are all the people of the world. The heathen. They are raging against us because they rage against the Lord. Then look in chapter 18. Beginning with verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. Brethren, this is not something that is, that is so futuristic that it's never occurred in the earth yet. This is not uh, some prediction of an un, un, uh, heretofore presented fact. This is the problem of the church in Thyatira. This is the Jezebel. This is Babylon the harlot. This is the seductress of this world's allurements of its riches and its pleasures. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. The pride of life. The things of the world that if a man loved them, the love of the Father is not in him. This is the constant pitfall and snare laid before our feet. This will send us to the pit if we get trapped by it. This is the peculiar sin of our age. The peculiar trap of Satan for this church in this day. Not that there aren't the others. But this is particularly pertinent to us. Here they are, and God says to us, come out of her. In other words, don't 
Don't be a part of this world value system. Don't swallow this line. Don't even let the false prophet who comes in Christ's garb, who tells you it's okay, deceive you. Because he'll do wonders. He'll preach in such a way that if possible, even the elect would be deceived. Don't let it happen. Because if you don't come out of her, you share in her sins and you'll receive of her plagues. That's the Lord's word on it. Then he goes out and says her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. And all the way through verse 20, he describes her downfall. In one verse after another, verses 8 and 9, her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine. Verse 9, the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Verse 14 and 15, the fruit of your soul longed for has gone from you. And all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you. You'll find them no more at all. Remember James. Howl and weep you rich. You've stored up all your investments in the last days. Don't you know these things will be eaten of moths? Don't you know your gold is going to rust? And don't you know all this stuff that you've laid up treasures for yourself? Tonight your soul is required of you. Don't you know it? And here's what they... Here's the picture, you see. They didn't expect this in one hour. And the merchants in verse 15, who became rich by her, will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. Verse 19 and 20, they threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city, it's a formidable foe, in which all who had ships in the sea became rich by her wealth, For in one hour she's made desolate. And then look in verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. You see, when you wouldn't partake of her fatness and when you wouldn't partake of her sins, she plagued you and she punished you and she persecuted you. Rejoice. God has taken vengeance upon her. Then in chapter 19, verse 2. True and righteous are his judgments because he's judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of her servants, of his servants shed by her. Verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was given to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You know, the righteousnesses of the saints which were given to them were were done in the midst of this Babylonian harlot's persecutions and pressures and deceivings and seductions. This is when they remained faithful and kept his works. This is how when they overcame. And what do they get for it? In the end, they'll be clothed with these righteousnesses that were given to them and they'll have the marriage feast with their Lord. Where will she be? In ruin. Verses 11 through 16, then heaven is opened, a white horse. He that is set on, sits on it called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then it goes on to describe him. And look, he has eyes of a flame of fire in verse 12. And on down, the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, verse 14. Who goes with him? 
The armies of heaven, who are those people? I believe they're, cult, they're the whole host of God's people who are included in the promise, you shall rule them with a rod of iron. You shall break them to pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, when he bruises the devil's head, we bruise the devil's head. Every time we preach the gospel, we strike a death blow at Satan's kingdom. Every time we pray and we stretch through the heavens and get hold of eternal God and bring to bear His power and pressure in this world against all the devil's devices and efforts to shut him up, we strike a death blow at the devil. You and I are given to rule the nations with Him. He says it, as the Father has given to me, I give to you. And the ultimate of that will be the day when we, the righteous, not our own righteousness, but the righteous that was given to us, will look upon the destruction of the wicked and see their fall. Not only will the wicked see it, we'll see it. No matter the heights of our sufferings, the depths of our struggles, the darkness of our way, the wounds received in battle, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. If we suffer with Him, we shall also reign with Him. His glory is ours. His victory is ours. His dominion is ours. All that He has earned, He gives to us. Psalm 37 tells us that the righteous will see the fall of the wicked. We'll still be standing when the wicked are crushed. Well, let me suggest to you who oppose Christ tonight. You say, well, I don't oppose Christ. Well, let me ask you. Are you refusing to bear the burden of his commandments? You continue in your fornication? Your love of this world's power and wealth and position? You'll lose it all, my friend. You're going to lose it all. It's not going to last. Your power will fail. Your good looks are going to turn into wrinkles. Your strength into weakness. You studs. You're not going to be studs forever. God's going to take away that macho false image that you've erected for yourself. Your position will be lost. Your wealth will end You came into the world with nothing. You're going to go out with nothing. They asked about John Rockefeller. They said, how much did he leave? And his manager said, everything. You're going to fall unless you hitch your wagon to the star of Christ. Avoid identity with the sufferer's. Get this self-denying flock off your back. Don't be associated with the people of God. Be embarrassed around them. Don't bring your friends to this church because you're not so proud of us. Be selective in whom you invite because you're ashamed of the preaching or the preacher or some others that might embarrass you because they're not up to your standard of social etiquette. My dear friend, be careful. These little nobodies of whom you're ashamed will stand in triumph at the last day with Christ and watch the destruction of the wicked. These little nobodies are Christ's somebodies. And they shall reign. You know the final words of Psalm 2. The Lord's final statement to these nations 
It's both a statement of hope and warning. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that what a mixture? Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. The Lord Jesus promises to those that are come that are faithful to the end. He promises to them they shall rule the nations. They shall share in his glory and his victory and his triumph and his rule. They shall not be discouraged. So I say to you, and we'll leave off tonight that second promise of the morning star for a later time. Don't grow weary in well-doing. You shall reap if you faint not. They rejoice now. You shall rule over them. They shall mourn. Someone may say, Pastor, I'm not weary. I'm doing fine. No one's bothering me in this world. I have Christ and the world. This promise is no big thing to me. I don't find too much comfort in it because I'm getting along good. I've got plans. I'm a Christian. I go to church regularly. I read my Bible. I've got some plans in this world too. I've got some things I want to do. Now, there's nothing illegitimate about those things. But brethren, if you've got your heart set on them, you're in danger of following Jezebel. If you think more about those treasures than the treasures in heaven, you've already stepped across the line. Perhaps God will bring it about so that you will need these comforts and promises. Maybe he'll take away the things of this world that you put your hope in. Then you won't have anything but him. Then maybe you'll run to him and say, Lord, let me hear again the day when I will rule the nations. And I'll have authority. And I'll be vindicated. I find that it's just about in proportion to our obedience to Christ and our sufferings with him that we find comfort in the promises. And those that aren't laboring to suffer for him and serve him sacrificially just don't get much out of passages like this. It's good God's righteous equity, isn't it? How would God let you get comforted if you're not paying any price for it? You're not overcoming anything. You're not fighting against sin. You're just tiptoeing through the garden and you've just got yourself living in one perpetual juggling act. And you've got the law of God in the air and you've got the world's dangers in the air and you just try to keep them all balanced. One day it's all going to come crashing in on you. Probably not as long as you think. Well, some may be even contemplating abandoning Christ and quitting because of the pressure. I tell you, the pressure is nothing in Christ compared to what it will be if you leave him. The way of the transgressor is hard, the Bible says. There's no place to go. He has the words of eternal life. I've been there. There's nothing there. I've been with the Lord and I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. It's a hard road. There are temptations along the way. But he that's willing to wait for the last judgment, willing to endure till the end and the vindication and the rule that he'll share with Christ, he'll not be disappointed. You see, you can't maintain your security both in this world and in the one to come. You cannot save your life in this world without losing it in the next. 
And you cannot save it in the next without losing it here. Have we learned that yet? I wonder if we've learned that yet. May God help us to learn that. The promise is to those that overcome, to those that keep his works to the end. They shall rule the nations with him. And they'll know what it means to see the fall of the wicked and rejoice in the justice and the vindication of God and his name and his glory. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are so dull by our indulgence in this world that your word has a hard time thrilling our hearts. Oh, Lord, our God, break through to our cold and hardened consciences. Make us a people who delight in the little things of Christ and love the simple things of the Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for having loved this world and save us from the plagues of Babylon by delivering us from participation in her sins. Lord, let us not be tricked by shallow and sloppy preaching and perverted preaching into thinking that little sins do not amount to destruction. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for your word which guards our minds. Help us to hide it in our hearts that we not sin against you. We thank you, Lord, for the promise that all that we endure now and all that we go through now and all the frustration and the fear and the battle against sin and Satan in the world and all that it takes to resist the, the allurements of this age will one day be rewarded and vindicated when we stand with you in all your glory and share in your triumph and your victory and your blessing. Oh, Lord, help us to stay and endure and keep your works to the end. Give us grace as a church. Let us not fall. Oh Lord, keep us from falling. That Christ may be glorified in us from now and to eternity. We ask it in his name. Amen.